joy and a privilege to be here with you all tonight. Grateful to see so many of you gathered together for uh, this night of worship and fellowship. So, uh, um, so as you guys know, as we've started these Wednesday night services, on Sunday we do um, preaching and exhortation, whereas on these Wednesday services we tend to focus more on teaching information, which is our nice way of informing you this is going to be boring. So buckle up. Uh, here we go. But yes, today we're going to be looking at a subject that I don't believe is boring at all, the, the subject of baptism. And there are a lot of things about baptism that we could talk about um, if I wanted to turn this into six weeks of lectures on the subject. And I do, but they won't let me. So while I want to do that, we won't be. So we're going to be focusing specifically today on what baptism is, not other related questions such as how we baptize or any of those things, um, but what baptism is, why we do it, and thus by implication we're going to deal with the question of who we baptize. Um, and so it is, it is important to note up front, just as we were just singing, that it is uh, that all evangelical Christians are going to agree together that it is not the waters of baptism that wash away our sin, but the shed blood of Christ on the cross. It is, it is Jesus and his death in our place that washes our sin away. Baptism does not save us. It does not take away our sin. Christ took away our sin. And so it is by the empty hand of faith, not through fulfilling a ritual like baptism or anything else, that we attain the grace that God is giving us. So then why do we baptize? And this is where even among Reformed evangelical Christians like ourselves, there has been and continues to be some disagreement on that question. And I need to emphasize that within that context, this is an in-house debate. We have, there are dear brothers and sisters in the Lord who we are going to spend eternity with and who we should embrace as brothers and sisters who are going to disagree with some things that I'm going to say tonight. Um, this is not a, an issue that, we, that, that divides whether someone is in or out of the kingdom. This, again, is not the salvation issue. And so among our Reformed Evangelical brothers, there are many who believe that baptism is primarily a sign of the new covenant, a sign of the covenant much like circumcision, and in fact replacing the very role of circumcision. And for that reason, baptism is to be done on the, on the children of believing households. Even though those children do not yet believe, and these Reformed Evangelical brothers would be very clear with you, they're not saying that the baptism of those children saves them. If that child does not grow up to repent and believe on Christ, that child still would not be saved. But they believe that the proper application of baptism as a covenant sign, just as you circumcised, you know, the children of Abraham, according to the flesh, would circumcise their children, whether that child was going to go grow up and follow the Torah or not, you circumcised the children in, in obedience to the covenant and, to, and they were included as members of the covenant community, even if they would later grow up to break that covenant and thus be cut off. And so our, many of our brothers in Christ view baptism, New Testament baptism, as primarily intended to function in this way. And that is not a heresy. But as I hope to show today, I do not believe that that is the biblical definition or primary intention of what baptism was designed to be or the function it was meant to play. And the right application of baptism is meant to be an expression of repentance and identification with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ done by a believer who is putting his trust in Christ and who is receiving, has received, is receiving forgiveness of sin on the merits of Christ. So thus, it is something that a believer does out of their belief, an expression of their belief in repentance. 
And, uh, and, and this is its primary role. This is definitional. And to get there, let's start with, the, with, a, with a more practical question. So what is baptism? Now, I will probably use for shorthand language such as immersing, plunging, dipping one in. Some, some other uh, Christian denominations would practice that differently. Again, that's not our topic today. I'm just using it as shorthand for today. I can defend that another time. But the point being that it is a ritual involving the immersing in or some other application of water to an individual. Why? Of all the rituals God could have chosen, what is this water? What is dunking someone in water supposed to mean? Why did God choose this image of all possible images that he could have called his people to do? Is there a biblical pre-existing meaning to this? And in fact, is there an innate human understanding of what this image would mean that makes this an appropriate symbol for what baptism is supposed to be? And the answer is yes. If I were doing my six one-hour lecture series, I would probably spend the first lecture going through the Old Testament and demonstrating the imagery of water and how it is used first and foremost in issues of ritual purity in a variety of ways, the washing of clothes, the washing of items, the immersing of oneself in water. All of these images had to do with, we have to be clear on here, the removal of impurity, not the removal of sin. These Old Testament rituals were not dealing with removing sin, but they were dealing with impurity. What do we mean by impurity? Like say if you touched a dead body, you were considered impure. We get that. Today you'd have to go wash your hands after you did that. Um, we, this, is, this, was, this isn't controversial. We get the idea that there are certain things you could touch certain places you could go, i.e. a public restroom, in which you would be expected to wash after you have been there. That There is an idea that certain things are unclean. And these things can be categories that go beyond dirt or germs. It's not just hygienic. And we have this in our own culture. We don't have to be Jewish experts to get this idea. So I want you to think for a second. You go into someone's house and you prop up your feet with shoes still on on their couch. That's considered disrespectful. It's wrong. Why? Because shoes are in the category of dirty, unclean things. And household furniture is in the category of clean things. However, this rule applies regardless of dirt. In college, I could show up at my buddy's house with brand new shoes and sit on his couch that I know he grabbed from next to a dumpster. <laughs> you guys went to, if you went to college, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> My shoes are cleaner than that couch, but it's still disrespectful to him for me to put the shoes on the couch. Why? I'm not getting the couch dirtier. He's getting my shoes dirtier. But it's disrespectful because in our culture, shoes are in the category of unclean things, regardless of dirt on them. Household furniture is in the category of clean things, and it's disrespectful to put the unclean things on the clean things. And this is in a secular culture where we don't attach any sacred significance to anything I just said. But we have these categories. This is meaningful. And that's why if your kid comes out of the bathroom and you say, did you wash your hands? And you know the answer is no. But you say, did you wash your hands? And they're like, oh, well, Daddy, I didn't need to because I was really careful and I only touched my clothes. I flushed the, flushed the toilet with my foot, so I didn't touch that. And so I don't need to wash my hands. They're clean. Get back in there and wash your hands. <laughs> you were in the unclean place doing the unclean thing. You need to wash your hands. There is as much a cultural ritual to this as there is a hygienic element to it. And your kid's probably lying. But even if that was true, <laughs> uh, there is as much a cultural concept of purity and impurity, even in our secular culture. Now, bring this into a culture that actually has regard for the sacred, i.e. almost any culture in human history besides the modern West. 
And now you, you have a whole other element to it. Taking your Bible into the bathroom and sitting there with that as reading material would be considered an affront to God because the Bible is sacred and that is an unclean place to take it. That is disrespectful. We don't do that. This, this would be the, the, because you're taking a sacred thing into the unclean place. And this was very, very significant in nearly every culture, but you see it throughout the Old Testament for the Jews. It was not a sin to touch a dead body. If someone died, someone needed to bury the body. Someone needed to carry it outside where people live and bury it somewhere. This was a normal part of life. And especially with what mortality would have been back then versus now. Most people would have come in contact with a dead body at some point. That's not a sin. But you're unclean. You need to go through a ritual before you can what? Before you can be involved in the sacred life of the community. You can't go before God with that uncleanness on you. It would be a sin to disrespect God by flaunting your uncleanness and just going in and handling the sacred without first cleansing yourself. And God gave specific rituals and ways in which they were to cleanse themselves and cleanse their things so that this symbolized reverence for living in the presence of God who was dwelling in their midst in the tabernacle, in the temple, throughout Old Testament history. And so over time, this took on huge significance for the Jews. If you move on beyond the Old Testament, by the time of the New Testament, you can, you, you, you can go and see archaeological digs where they've unearthed these mikvahs, these immersion um, uh, pools, artificial ones that they've filled with properly pure water. And I won't go into it now, but you can go read the, um, the Mishnah and see just how many rules they had for what water was acceptable. But you can go in and you would immerse yourself to cleanse yourself. And they had these everywhere because people were immersing to cleanse themselves all the time. More and more rules about this cleansing had become a part of Jewish life because they took so seriously the idea of being clean when they handled the sacred or when they entered the sacred place or when they came before the sacred one. And so this image of immersing in water, of being plunged into water, had extreme significance already. This brought in a meaning with it. But another thing to realize is that it had also, in language, taken on an analogical meaning. There was a metaphor to it that this was just about cleanness, not about morality. But when expressing repentance in many Jewish writings, even back to the Old Testament, Psalm 51 is a great example. When David is expressing his repentance over the issue of Bathsheba, adultery, murder, he understood water couldn't wash that off. Yet, when he's crying out to God in his repentance, forgive me, O God, one of the things that he cries out is, wash me with hyssop and I will be clean. Now, is he asking God to really wash him with physical water? No, it's a metaphor. The picture of ritual cleansing became the metaphor, the analogy for moral cleansing. And you have within the Dead Sea Scrolls and other ancient Jewish writings, you have a number of places where we find this language where repentance is expressed by the analogy of water, of washing, of immersion, of, of ver- various forms, not always the same form, but various expressions of water being washed with water as a cleansing of sin. Interestingly enough, very often in repentance forms, whereas in a Jewish ritual, you would wash yourself. In these mikvahs, they would dunk themselves. It wasn't like our baptisms. They would get in themselves. But when you were repenting, you were always asking, some, asking in this case, God to wash you. You were, you were asking for washing. You were not taking it upon yourself to wash. And so this is where we get to the New Testament and baptism comes in, beginning with the baptism of John. Now, the baptism of John is not identical to Christian baptism. There is a distinction there. But as we're going to see, the baptism of John lays the foundation, lays out all the imagery and the meaning that is picked up and enhanced, enhanced by Christian baptism. And in fact, the baptism of John is extremely important. The Gospel of Mark begins by calling the preaching and baptism of John the beginning of the Gospel. The book of Acts tells us 
that you couldn't be qualified to be an apostle when Judas died and they were looking for one replacement to fill that spot because there needed to be exactly 12 apostles to fill that spot for, uh, for Judas. They looked for someone who had been there with Jesus from the baptism of John until the resurrection. That was what they needed to be a witness of. The baptism of John, that was the beginning through the resurrection. Uh, throughout the book of Acts, even in Paul's preaching, the baptism of John is reemphasized. We could go, go through a lot of that. We won't today. But the point being, the New Testament sees this as extremely foundational for the gospel. This is, the gospel begins with the preaching of John. And John, he bega- he, so he came, and he's telling people, repent and be baptized. And he's expecting people to know what that means. And so they're coming in the Jordan, and he is immersing them or baptizing them. He is carrying out this act on them. So again, immediately different from the Jewish rituals around them in that they're not doing it to themselves. John is doing it to them. This is unique. John's baptism is unique in a number of other ways. It's message. If we look at uh, Luke 3.3, 3, and you find this in the other gospels as well, says, and he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Again, literal Jewish water rituals were not about forgiveness of sins. They were about impurity. But John takes the metaphor and makes it literal and says, when you're repenting, that you're actually going to be dunked in water. He acts out the metaphor. If you go back and read the Old Testament prophets, they do things like this all the time. They act out metaphors for their prophetic message. They, uh, we could go through tons of really Weird examples like uh, having to lay, lay on your side for days on end and then roll over and lay on your side for days on end, having to cook your food over dung and, and all, the, all these bizarre things the prophets were asked to do, acting out their prophecies of judgment or of restoration that were to come. And John comes immediately acting like a prophet, something people haven't seen in hundreds of years. And one of the things he's doing is his repentance call is being lived out in action. He's calling you to repent, and that repent is expressed in the literal lived-out metaphor of being plunged into water as an outward expression. And he did not tolerate anyone doing this if they weren't genuinely repentant. The Pharisees come out to go through the ritual. Beginning of Matthew, you read about that, Matthew chapter 3. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You go bear fruit uh, in keeping with repentance. He wasn't just handing this out, and this wasn't in place of repentance. This didn't produce supernaturally a repentance that wasn't there. This was acting out the repentance you already had. Paul tells us something more about about this message. That If you read through everything about John the Baptist, you'd see it, but uh, Paul summarizes it very well. In Acts 19.4, Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. So what was John's message in his baptism? Repent and believe. Believe on Jesus Christ. The one John said was to come after him, who John would not even be worthy to untie his shoes or to carry his sandals. Um, the, The Lord to come. So, in, in quick summary, what is different about John's baptism from any ritual that existed before? What did John introduce, this new thing that was drawing on the imagery of a very old thing? Well, repentance and forgiveness of sins rather than mere cleansing and impurity. John's baptism, we didn't say this yet, but John's baptism is a, is a one-time act. John didn't want people to continue to get baptized over and over and over again. It's a one-time act. John's baptism was being done by someone else. You were coming to be baptized because you were repenting. You weren't just cleansing yourself of uncleanness. You were seeking cleansing that you could not attain on your own. You were seeking a cleansing outside of yourself. And all of this was was looking forward to the coming of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. Keep Make his path straight. You're repenting. You're getting ready for the Lord to come. Repenting of your sins acting that out in baptism, believing he's coming, trusting in him, seeking forgiveness of sins in him. It's no wonder that the, uh, that the gospel writers saw John as preaching the gospel. He was. 
And as a side note, it's no wonder that in the book of Acts, we won't have time to deal with any of it today, but Christians would run into disciples of John and take them as brothers because they were preaching the same message and then would realize, oh, you, you only know the message of John. Let me fill you in on what you don't know. You see this happen several times in Acts because John was preaching the gospel message, but looking forward to the imminent coming of Christ. And this message was embodied in the act of baptism that had this rich meaning. Repent and be washed. Let your sins be forgiven and believe in the coming Lord. This is what baptism meant. This is what baptism was revealed to mean. And this is what everything that God had laid out in the law and the prophets pointing forward with this water imagery had laid the foundation for it to mean. This is how people would have taken it. It's how people did take it. And so the baptism of John was a baptism of repentance and faith. So when we move forward in Acts, I, I will pause. Uh, uh, I will pause just to, it's, it's worth noting that the baptism itself, again, we, we've stated it, but it needs to be emphasized. The baptism itself is not where the forgiveness of sins comes from. It is the repentance and faith. And Luke, after introducing, I read from Luke that John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As you go on through the gospel of Luke, you see people like Zacchaeus who repent and Jesus tells them salvation has come to this house. But he didn't get baptized. He repented and Jesus accepted his repentance and forgave his sins and he was saved. Baptism wasn't required there for salvation to occur. The thief on the cross, he didn't get to get down and get baptized. Luke tells us that same story. You see this just in Luke's gospel, this thread running through. Thief on the cross, he, uh, he expresses his faith in Christ. Remember me in your kingdom, assuming Jesus would be in his kingdom and would have power. to. He, he, he assumed who Jesus was, and he put his trust in him, that Jesus, even after he died, could do something for him. He put his trust in Jesus as Lord. And Jesus accepted that faith and said, you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't say, get down and get baptized. Or someone's got to be baptized for you after you die, and then maybe one day you can be with me. No, you can be with me today immediately on your faith and repentance alone, which the man was repentant as well. He was saying, I deserve, say, I deserve to be up here. Jesus doesn't. Uh, so, and there are many, many passages that we could turn to to make that point, but I think it's, it's important to recognize the repentance and faith are what saves, but that baptism was inseparably tied to that. Baptism was an expression of that repentance and faith, an outward living out of repentance and faith that saves. So Luke's gospel ends, ends with him saying, the risen Jesus standing before his disciples before he ascends into heaven, he's opening their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Remember this language here. So they're to preach repentance for forgiveness of sins, and I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Uh, so, and, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then Luke and Acts are written by the same author. It's really a two volumes of the same work. If you read the first chapter of Acts, you'll see he says, in my last book, O Theophilus, I wrote these things to you. Now, and he continues, it's two volumes of the same work. So Acts chapter 2, we see the fulfillment. He said in, in uh, Luke 24, Jesus says, wait until power comes from on high. Acts chapter 2, that happens. The Spirit comes down on them, and they go and they proclaim the gospel with supernatural power, filled with the very Spirit of God. And as they proclaim the gospel, there are people who hear it and believe. And they say to Peter in Acts chapter 2, 37 through 39, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ 
for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, even Peter didn't realize yet that this was going to mean Gentiles. That doesn't, that doesn't become clear till Acts chapter 10. Um, but, but in fact, Peter's words had greater scope, Peter's words in the spirit here had greater scope than even he realized that those who are far off included all who are far off, everyone who God would call to himself. This, the, the promise is for them. Well, what's the promise? Well, again, what is Peter doing here? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. What did Jesus say in Luke 24? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Peter is fulfilling what Jesus said. And then what did Jesus say after that? You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. What was the promise? The Holy Spirit. What does Jesus say? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. This is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Do children of believers receive the Holy Spirit purely by merit of being biological children of, of believers? Well, no, even our Reformed um, Pado-Baptist or infant baptizing brothers would agree. No, that happens at salvation. But that's the promise being talked about. The promise, he says, this is for you and your children and for all who are far off is the promise of the Holy Spirit. How do you receive that promise of the Holy Spirit? Well, you, your children, and all who are far off receive the promise the same way. Repent and believe the gospel. And how do you express that repentance? Well, Peter says, be baptized in his name. And so this promise... The Holy Spirit is for you and your children and those who are far off. All who what? Whether you, your children, those who are far off, all, everyone whom our Lord, or everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It is upon coming to God in repentance and faith in the gospel that this, that this promise, the Holy Spirit, is received. And it is received on the basis of repentance and faith, which is normatively expressed through baptism. And as you begin to read through Acts, what do you see is that every example of a baptism is a response to this repentance and faith. Christian baptism adds new meaning that John's baptism didn't have. And we're going to see more of that as we look through more scriptures on this subject. But, what, is it, but, but it, what it doesn't do is erase and overthrow the meaning that baptism already had. There is no, no, nowhere here where Peter, Peter says, yes, John used to preach a baptism that meant that, this, but throw that out. Baptism now means something else. He did not overthrow previous revelation of what baptism meant, what it meant to come and seek to have someone immerse you in water as you were seeking forgiveness of your sins. This this is what baptism means, and Peter used the same meaning John did, but it was given new force and new life. How? Well, in part, because Christ had already come. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which he preached earlier in chapter 2, was already fulfilled. You were trusting in the very name of Jesus. And the gift of the Holy Spirit. John himself said, I baptize with water, but one who's coming after me, who's greater than I, will baptize in the Holy Spirit. And so the fact that Christian baptism is now tied to the promise, the new covenant promise of the Holy Spirit, is a huge advancement already. And we're going to see even more as richer meaning is given to this this rite and ritual. But none of it takes away from what every single person in that crowd would have already understood be baptized to mean. It meant to repent of your sins and believe on the coming Lord, or now the Lord who had come. They had missed and crucified, and yet whose very crucifixion 
had redeemed them from their sins. But I said, as you work through Acts, every baptism you see is this expression. But there's a little pushback, and we have to be fair with this and treat this seriously. There are a few instances where someone comes to faith and it mentions their whole household being baptized. We don't have time to spend a great deal of time on this just because I'm already running late. But let's, uh, let's look as quickly as we can at some of these examples of household baptisms and that they are not exceptions to the rule that I'm talking about. So the first of these, which is given in the most detail and clearly is, is set up as the sort of standard one from which the other household baptisms are quick short stories that are summaries of the same kind of thing. But this one is unique because it's the first time the gospel is, is coming, at least in the narrative, This is the first time we read of the gospel definitely coming to uncircumcised Gentiles. Um, And so that's in Acts chapter 10 in the story of Cornelius. And so Cornelius was a, a Gentile centurion. An angel comes to him, tells him to send for Peter. He sends for Peter. Peter gets a vision letting him know that he should, even though as a Jew he normally wouldn't have gone into the house of a Gentile, he should do it and not consider them unclean because God is declaring them clean. He goes on in and he preaches the gospel to them. Interestingly, though, when Cornelius is introduced, Acts chapter 10, verse 2, it already says that Cornelius is a devout man who feared God with all his household. So Cornelius' household is already defined as people who fear God along with Cornelius. These aren't Infants who don't know anything about God, these, these are people who fear the God of Israel, even though they're Gentiles. They, they worship and honor, and the whole household does, not just Cornelius. They fear him with him. So that's why he's listening when God sends an angel. He's praying to the God of Israel. He listens. He sends for Peter. Peter comes, preaches to the household. And as they're listening, um, Peter preaches to them about Jesus. And he says, to him, Jesus All the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So again, forgiveness of sins is through faith, not baptism. Peter's very clear on this here. Um, And so are our Pado-Baptist brothers. Uh, All in agreement on that. Um, So he's preaching belief in Jesus for forgiveness of sins. And when he does, the whole household hears it. And the spirit falls on the whole household. And they all begin to speak in tongues and to praise God verbally. And and Peter and the Jews who are with them look at this. And they're astounded as they see the spirit of God fall on them. And Peter says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Who's baptized? People who God poured out the Holy Spirit on people who believed in Jesus and received the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 11, um, Peter retells this story to other Jews who are questioning him going to Gentiles. He says, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who was I to stand in the way of God? When they heard these things, they all fell silent and they glorified God saying, then the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. That was the takeaway here, that this household had received repentance that leads to life. That repentance was expressed then in baptism. In Acts 15, Peter retells this story again on the very question of whether Gentiles still need circumcision. Peter goes back to Cornelius again, and he retells this story again. And and his answer is not, they don't need circumcision because it's been replaced. Now they need baptism. They don't need circumcision because we have a new ritual for that. What he says is, uh, in Acts 15, 7 and 9, After there had been much debate, Peter stood and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. 
And so he made no distinction between us and them. We're now part of the, part of the same people by faith. And he goes on to argue, therefore, they don't need to come under a law like this. Baptism never even comes up. It's not the issue. It, and so what we have here is salvation by faith bringing us into one people who are one people because God gives us all the spirit. And baptism is an expression of that faith and repentance that makes us the one spirit-filled people. And this is the kind of thing that you see when you walk through the rest of the household baptisms. Uh, For time's sake, I won't go through them all now, um, but if anyone has any questions on them, please come talk to me if there's one of them that you think uh, isn't explained by the household actually coming to faith and that infants have to be involved there. Um, But so moving on from Acts where we see the description of baptism lived out in the church and it constantly defined in terms of repentance and faith just as it was in the Gospels before. We move into Paul where he also discusses these things. Um, and this, again, is where um, my, my dear Reformed brothers um, who disagree with me on this will, will tend to go to Colossians 2.11, where you read, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Doesn't that say that baptism is the circumcision of Christ? Or does it? It says that you have that it says that the uncircumcised Gentiles, who's he's, who he's arguing don't need to be circumcised, received a circumcision without hands. Baptism is still performed with hands. They received a circumcision done without hands. They received a circumcision that God did to them that no man did to them. This is talking about the inner work of regeneration. And that this whole thing, when he mentions being buried with him in baptism in this context, is actually about conversion. When we just read the greater context, going back to verse 9 and reading all the way through the 14. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is in the head of all, that rule, of all rule and authority. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the, power working of, in the powerful working of God uh, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul uses the same buried with him in baptism language elsewhere in Romans uh, 6, 3 through 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order uh, that just as Christ was raised from the, de- from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in his death, nor any death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul is seeing baptism as an expression of one's union with Christ. He's speaking to people, drawing on their baptism to tell them you have an assurance you will be raised with him. All of us who have been baptized into him will be raised with him. This is applying baptism as specific to believers. And he doesn't say some of us who have been baptized in him will be raised into him, will be raised with him. He is, he is assuming believers' baptism here, that, that baptism is to be applied to believers. Uh, this is the assumption Paul makes and the very point that he draws from what baptism is. And here's that richer imagery. That when we go into the water, it symbolizes our identification with his death and resurrection. Our union with him that when he died, he died my death. 
and that his resurrection secures my resurrection with him. I am identifying with that in baptism. And so baptism means an expression of repentance and faith, yes, but it gives such a richer picture of what that faith is. What I'm trusting for the forgiveness of my sins when I am baptized is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is what I'm trusting in when I go to God and say, wash me, cleanse me. I turn from my sin, forgive my sin, take that sin from me. And I symbolize that. I act that out through the outward rite of baptism that represents, symbolizes the inner reality of my repentance and faith. And in that, I am trusting specifically that that forgiveness is on the basis that Jesus died my death and rose from the dead, conquering death and hell itself and guaranteeing my resurrection. My forgiveness is in him. That is what I'm saying when I go into the baptismal waters. That's what I'm publicly stating. That is what I'm expressing. And so, how does this connect to new covenant membership? I have a lot on that. We won't read all of it. Uh, (laughs) um, So we summarize. Hebrews chapter 8 specifically goes into the fulfillment of the new covenant and what makes the new covenant in Christ greater than the old covenant. And he quotes from Jeremiah 31 and explicitly demonstrates that the new covenant that, that Jesus has already brought his people into in the New Testament is different from the old in that everyone in the new covenant has been given the spirit of God. That no longer does someone in the covenant need to say to, the, to, to their brother, to their neighbor in the covenant, know the Lord because everyone in the new covenant knows the Lord. That this this is, an, this is a covenant of God's regenerate people. We aren't born into the new covenant according to the flesh. We are born again into the new covenant when we are born according to the spirit. Ezekiel also twice in 11.19 and in 36.26 picture, uh, um, gives the new, Testament, the, new, the new covenant promises as God removing the heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh, this regeneration that will make us desire to follow him. And Paul, again, draws on that in making the distinction between the old and new covenant. In uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where he's comparing the covenants, and he, talk, and he co- contrasts the tablets, ri- uh, the tablets written in stone, the Old Testament law, with the tablets of hearts of flesh. What's written on tablets of hearts of flesh? What's the image he's drawing on here? That's Ezekiel's image of the heart of stone and the heart of flesh. Paul, too, sees the new covenant promises as already inaugurated now. Those in the new covenant are regenerate. They've been given a new heart. Even Joel chapter 2, which promises the coming of the Spirit, which Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost when the Spirit comes, says, And it shall come to pass afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. What's the picture here? Is the picture that literally every human being, whether believer or not, will have the Holy Spirit? No. The promise, and as it was fulfilled at Pentecost, is that every member of the covenant community will have the Spirit of God. Young, old, male, female, rich, poor, slave, free, all will have equal share in the Spirit of God poured out on all of God's people. And again, Peter says this is fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 when he preaches, repent and be baptized and you will receive the Holy Spirit. This is the promise that's for you and your children and those who are far off. It's this promise The Spirit of God poured out on all God's covenant people. This is the beautiful inauguration of the new covenant that we now live in. And baptism, if we are to see baptism as a covenant sign, okay, but who are the children of the covenant? Those born according to the flesh? No. 
No, I'll close out by reading here from... Uh, oh, it flipped to the wrong page on me. In Galatians chapter 3, where we come to understand in the new covenant fulfillment, who are the offspring of Abraham? Who are God's people, his covenant people? He says, does he who supplies the spirit to you, this is 3 beginning at verse 5, spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Those who are of faith are the ones receiving the covenant blessings. Those who are of faith are the ones who are brought in. He continues, uh, for all who rely on works of the law are are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who uh, uh, who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law uh, is, uh, is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Again, what is the promise? The spirit. And the Spirit is given in fulfillment to the seed of Abraham. Who are the seed of Abraham? Those who are of the faith of Abraham, whether Jew or Gentile. Who is in the new covenant? Who are the covenant people? Who receive any sign and seal of the covenant? Believers. Those who have turned from their sin and come to Christ in faith. Simply by being born in a household according to the flesh does not make you part of that covenant. And that's the continued repeated drumbeat of old and new Testament together. Instead, it is those who are of faith, the faith of Abraham that are the seed of Abraham, as Paul says. And so it's for these and many other reasons that we come to the conclusion That what is baptism? Baptism is an expression of my repentance of sin and my faith in Jesus Christ, my identification with his death and resurrection and my trust that it is through what he has done that I am cleansed of my sin and not through anything I can do. For me to turn baptism into something I do to gain cleansing would be an affront to everything that baptism represents. Because what Jesus did is is what I get my cleansing from. But so too, for me to baptize someone who, who I know, who I know does not believe or has no credible profession of faith, has not repented of their sin, does not understand the gospel, also misses what baptism is meant to be, and then denies that child, if they grow up and believe, the opportunity to express that repentance and faith in the way that God designed and gave for them to do it. It is denying my child something precious. The opportunity when they own that faith to, in obedience to the command and model of Scripture, to display that repentance, to act out that repentance, and to identify with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ by coming forward and submitting to baptism. And so this is why we practice practice baptism the way that we do. And I I hope this has been helpful to you. 
And there's so much more we could say. I had a whole section on the, the history of the practice in the church after the New Testament and the history of interpretation. Maybe a lecture for another time. Um, but I will give one snippet from that, just in closing, from the Protestant reformer Ulrich Zwingli, who uh, was the founder of the covenant sign position that said infant baptism should be practiced. It has nothing to do with repentance or faith, but it is a covenant sign like circumcision and, or nothing to do with the repentance and faith of the individual, I should say. Um, uh, and therefore, should be practiced on children. And then as he wrote, publishing this for the first time, he said, looking back on the history of the church from the New Testament to, to him, in this matter of baptism, if I may be pardoned for saying it, I can only conclude that all the doctors have been in error from the time of the apostles. This is a serious and weighty assertion, and I make it with such reluctance that, I had, not been, that had I not been compelled to do so by contentious spirits, I would have preferred to keep silent. Later he goes on, at many points we shall have to tread a different path than that taken either by ancient or more modern writers or by our own contemporaries. So what's he saying? He's saying the view of baptism that I'm about to communicate has never been believed by any Christian before me. Nobody reading the New Testament since the time of the apostles has ever come to this conclusion about, about what baptism is before me. So the position taken by, by many of my Reformed brothers that baptism is not an expression of repentance or individual faith and therefore and is a covenant sign like circumcision that we should give to our biological children and is completely disconnected from repentance, faith, or salvation. That total, total view, you might be able to find this piece of it here or this piece of it there, but you would never find anyone before Zwingli who held that view in all the history of biblical interpretation. That should give you pause. 